when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Bienvenidos, listeners, to episode 87 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and here with me for a conversation about Pixar's newest film, Coco, is mi amigo and co-host, Patch. Olaf. Oh, no. No, no. That's, you know, that <laughs> totally, de- totally derails the intro. Just, I'm just, I'm done. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, I, I guess the throwing of papers doesn't really work much on an audio medium, but hey. I could have picked up the slack for you if you wanted describe to. Describe it. I've got the script right here if you want to meet the As continue. he looks on in fury, Aaron raises his hand to the sky and tosses the papers behind him. Sorry. Um, Pixar films generally take the world by storm, Patrick, and it seems like this one is no different. It has been uh, taken the box office by storm. What is different about Coco, though, is that it focuses on Mexican culture in a way that is not normally seen in Hollywood films. I am very excited to talk about this. Uh, but before we do that and we jump into our main review, I thought maybe we could do something a little different than normal and have a, a brief second review for this episode. The reason being is that I recently was able to have Patrick introduced to a movie, a documentary that came out this year, maybe last year and this year, I can't remember, but uh, a movie called Ketty. Uh, and Patrick, you really enjoyed it. And so I thought maybe we could talk about what you thought about it. Absolutely. You know me in documentaries. I'm more than likely going to enjoy any kind of documentary. And this one was no exception. And what I appreciated most about this was really how it made me smile from beginning to end. There are documentaries out there that make me kind of have my jaw drop because of some of the things that happen in them. There are some that make me kind of question my humanity. Um, documentaries have this ability to connect you with real people. Uh, it's in a lot of ways, it's better than, well, in uh, more than a number of ways, it's better than reality television because reality television is anything but that most of the time. Documentaries, I think, give me as a filmmaker, amateur filmmaker, the opportunity to see technical uh, exercises done through camera work and storytelling and give me an emotional connection to real people as opposed to just made up stories. And so Ketty was a little different going in because this was a story about cats, <laughs> or at least I thought it was, I mean, it was, it's a story about cats, but it's really the story about cats and people and a little town in Istanbul. And I, I only knew the very little bit that you told me about it, I think you'd mentioned it on a, what we've been up to uh, several weeks back. So when I got a chance to actually watch it, I I know that in the in in all of our reviews, or at least in, in several lately, I've been trying to sum up how I felt in one word. And adorable is the one word that comes to <laughs> mind when I watch That's this, be, because it's it, it's a it's a documentary that relies heavily on visuals and nonverbal communication. The fact that it's subtitled, I think really amplifies that for me and getting a chance to just watch the movie and experience it and have the stories play out in such tender ways was something that 
I didn't expect to experience. I didn't know what to experience. Any documentary about cats is bound to get my at least one thumb up because I like cats. But to find out what I did about this uh, this town and these people and these animals really just kind of put me in awe in a lot of ways. So it, it was it was really really an enjoyable experience for me. Yeah, I. I didn't have any doubt at all that you would enjoy it. And when I saw it, I, I kind of knew, you know, right away, okay, this is a movie that he's going to like. In fact, this is a movie that I, I have a hard time believing anyone could watch this and not find it adorable. Most people that I've, I've talked to had, that have seen it have all raved about it and have been very impacted by it. it it's like you said, it's, it's kind of surprising because I think we all go into it initially thinking, oh, it's about cats. Um, I've seen the trailer myself, and it made me think, because of the trailer, that it was all about cats. You just see cats on the street, and cats in cafes, and, you know, cats in the balcony, and cats walking on cars, and all these cats. And it looks like, it looks like from the trailer that Istanbul is overrun by this population of cats. Um, and it's just, it's just like there's more of them than people. Well, it's not, quite like that um <laughs> when you get into it but they do have this unique city life where these stray cats these street cats uh, are not rounded up by animal control essentially they're allowed to roam freely and once we started getting into the fact that it was as much about the people that interacted with these cats and what they did for the city and what it, what the cat's presence uh, accomplished by, you know, helping people to become more compassionate and caring and just aware of their surroundings, it became so much more and so so much deeper than than I thought it was going to be. And so then it just went from you know adorable to meaningful and adorable, and I just I absolutely love it. I I will sing its praises as long as I can. I will encourage everyone to see it as soon as they're possible. It, it, it's also got great cinematography. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's not like a thrown together mess. You know, it's, it really looks good. Uh, and I think that the way that the city is framed in many instances sticks out to me, uh, particularly the, the way that they show us Istanbul from many different angles, from street level, from sky, from, various windows and such. And there's just, there's just all these awesome cats too. I mean, so the, it essentially follows multiple different cats and their experiences with different humans that they interact with. I have a favorite. Did you have a favorite? Um, I think I did. I was looking at the IMDb, IMDb page to really? confirm when this came out and it was 2016. But what I found very, very hilarious was that the cast lists all the cats so really? yeah, yeah, it's got Bingu as herself and Dingu played by himself. Bingu and Duman as himself and Gamzies. I oh, think Gamzies. I think it was Denise. I, I don't I, know. I, I don't know the specific. It was names. the. I think it was the second cat that was featured that I I really gravitated towards. What was but the it, special thing about that cat? He. I think it was because he was a. What was it? Um Oh, gosh, see, now I'm trying to recall why he was so cute. I think it was because he was described as a loner, how he kind of ruled the roost and was 
I, I think it was just the way he looked too, that he was just very, the, the way he cut his eyes at, at, at his not owners, but at the people that he connected with, I thought he was great. Uh, story-wise, I think uh, Bingyu, who opens and closes the, the movie, was the most memorable to me because it's, particularly when you mentioned the cinematography, there are some really great tracking shots that follow her as she's scavenging for food only to take back to her litter. And I love that the movie itself frames the entire story, not around her, but it begin, it bookends her. Uh, it bookends itself using her by starting and finishing the movie. What about you? Did you have a favorite? Yeah. And I, I don't remember the names. It's been a little while since I've seen it, but there's, there's one particular cat that is featured toward the end and he is living outside of a cafe or what's, I don't know. It's kind of like a cafe, but it's also like a meat shop or sandwich shop, bakery type place. Mm-hmm. And the neat, the neatest thing is that this cat stays outside the door right by the windowsills and there there's outdoor seating in front of this little cafe and the cat never tries to go inside. It doesn't <laughs> Patrick's pawing at the screen in, uh, in remembrance, but yes, that's what the cat does. Doesn't bother the patrons who are eating. It doesn't beg for food. It just stays patiently. And then when it gets hungry or when it's ready to eat it, you know, it paws at the window or the door and the owners come out and give it some food. And they set it down and it eats and then it just goes back to sleep and stays there. And it, I mean, I just, I can't imagine having my own little quaint restaurant like that and having a cat mascot outside my, my door. I think that would be pretty phenomenal. So I really enjoyed him, but I, I liked most of the stories. I just, I thought they were so sweet. My kids love this as well. When I saw the movie, I saw it with a group of people at a special event on National Cat Day. Uh, so that was, it was a big deal and the theater was full of cat lovers and it was just, it was, it was fun. They, we actually had a, an hour long produced video. Uh, it was like a mashed together long movie of cat videos from the internet that they had put together. And so that's how we started before we saw the documentary and it was, man, it was just an awesome experience. But yeah, I don't know. I think you had mentioned that the quote, I thought we could share the quote, um, to me, that was really so meaningful from the documentary about the connection of cats and mm-hmm. humans. Yeah, th- there were a couple that stood out to me and they came near the end. And this is really what cinched it for me in, in terms of being more than just an interesting documentary, but a, a visceral one. And that uh, there was one individual who said, quote, in a way, street animals are our cultural symbol. They become a distinct trait of Istanbul. So these cats have become an equal part of the symbolic and personality of this particular town in, in Istanbul. And then the second one, which I think had a lot of impact for me was uh, quote, uh, our concerns for street animals and our concerns for people are completely related to one another. The troubles that the street cats and street animals face are not independent of the troubles we face. It would be easy to treat street cats as a problem but if we can learn to live together again, maybe we'll learn to solve our own problems as we learn to solve theirs. And it that's would be, the, easy. that's the one, that's yeah. the one I was remembering. Yeah. And it's, it's impactful because there's some truth behind that. I, I don't want my city Sherwood to be infested with street animals in order to teach me a lesson about how to take care of people. But there's something you and I can attest to from being animal lovers there's something about the way we connect with non people 
in the way in which we take care of them and in which in the way in which they interact with us. And in particular cats uh, from this documentary that allow us to feel something a little bit differently. And, you know, some would argue, well, that's really weird. You care about animals more than you care about people. No, that's not the case. If it came down to my son or my dog, my, my dog would have to go or, or my cat. But what this does is you have this population that is infested with people and animals, all who are dealing with not just overpopulation, but a crowded city and needs. They need food, they need water, they need shelter. And I think the way the quote sticks with me because I feel like it's true that the way in which these guys treat the animals in their town, not as equals, but as valuable living creatures, says a lot about how they treat each other. I don't think it's a compare and contrast. I think it's an extension. And I think that quote really sums it up nicely. Yep. I think that's exactly it. I mean, if we, as humans in general, if we look at these animals who have value and have, uh, they provide us with an emotional um, connection at times and they, they, they have, they have worth in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can, we can in some ways compare that and, and not directly, but to people that, that have less than us. Right. And the way, and like you said, the way that we treat these animals who are not on the same level as we may be personally is an extension and, and it kind of shines through to how we potentially te- treat people that are not quite on our same level as we see it. Right. And, and the, and the film makes, it does a great job of showing that without being, it doesn't, it's not preachy or anything like that. So don't, don't think for a second that it's going to sit there and lecture you. Um, right. it, it's very adorable, but yeah, right. anywho, Keddy, yeah. it's called Keddy, K E D I. We thought this was perfect because we're covering two movies that both have one word titles with four letters and not an ex- and not expecting what we got. We thought it was about cats, but it's about something else. And of course, Coco is not, we thought it was about Coco and culture and music. And it's, not. Well, I thought it was going to be about Coco, but as we'll get into the review, like hot Coco, uh, no, that's hot chocolate. Wait, that was, sorry. That was the Polar Express on Cinescope last week. You're getting your podcast. Go listen. Confused. I know. I know. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Plug that real quick and then we'll. Yeah. Uh, last week, uh, if you're listening to this, the day that we're actually recording, or at least the day after, I got a chance to be on Cinescope with Chad Hopkins to ring in the holiday season of 2017 by covering the Polar Express. Uh, if any of you guys have listened to his show, you know that he did this episode, uh, did an episode last year where he actually did a commentary on the Polar Express. And I remember he contacted me the day before I was getting back from Kenya saying, Hey, is that something that you'd be willing to do is be on the show? And I'm like, Oh, as much as I would love to, my jet lag is probably going to say no. And, but put me on the slate for next year. And so back last month, I reminded him and he was more than willing to put it on the schedule. So yeah, last week I got a chance to talk about the Polar Express. And as I mentioned on social media, the things that I learned from the conversation with Chad uh, just blew my mind. It makes me want to repeat. I mean, just I've watched the movie so many times, but I want to actually go back now 
after this conversation and and rewatch some of the certain parts that we discussed and the insight that he brought. So it's a fantastic episode, not just because I was on it. I mean, I'm going to plug that for sure, but the discussion is really good. And so if you like Polar Express and you like what Cinescope is doing, I know that we do, uh, give it a listen and uh, and give him some some love that way. Awesome, man. Well, I will listen to that one at some point this Christmas season once I rewatch Polar Express. Now it's time to move into our episode on Coco. And before we do that, we need to take 21 minutes and talk about Olaf. No, we don't. Okay. No, No, seriously, though. (laughs) This episode is going to be spoilerific, as always. If you haven't seen Coco yet, it does have twists. Sorry, that's a spoiler in itself, but whatever. Uh, It isn't everything that you expect it to be going into it. Um, It does have some surprises. And so don't listen to this until you've seen the movie. Go enjoy it for yourself and get to experience that uh, for your own enjoyment. And and then come back and listen to us after that. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, back to Olaf, Patrick. So, yeah. So we're going to do this because, (laughs) see, I was lucky. And my press screening of uh, Coco did not – Disney was not going to release the Olaf short early. I don't know if that's because they didn't want it talked about. My guess is yes. Uh, or if they wanted it to be a surprise because it was so amazing. I haven't seen it, so I can't actually say. So I haven't seen this short film or Pixar short as we've come to know them. No, 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 no. First of all, let's not call it a Pixar short because that's not what it is. <laughs> it's an episode of television. It's, oh. it's, it's PJ Masks. It's uh, Super Y. It's an episode of, you know, pick your, pick your Disney episode, you know, your Disney TV show. And, and that's what it is. It's essentially an episode without commercials. You know, I kind of wish they would have thrown some trailers in between to just continue to remind me that this is actually an episode of television. This isn't a short film. So, (laughs) so this, this short film, sorry, is, is getting a lot of heat right now. Apparently Disney is actually going to be pulling it from theaters here in the next week or so. They're going to remove it from playing in front of Coco. I don't know what, I guess they've heard a lot of backlash from this. I know your experience, you were going to intentionally go to the theater late to avoid this. And that didn't happen. Right. I, my, my, my showtime was at 10 15. I left work at 10 15 to get there at 10 30. I walked into the theater and there was a, I don't know what the company is that, but it's the same company that brought us Wallace and Gromit that trailer was finishing up and I sat in my seat. And the first thing after that was, uh, the, the Olaf thing, the winter disaster or whatever it was called. So I'm, I'm taking it by your comments so far that you did not enjoy it. Yes. And let me, let me end my sarcasm there and just, and say this, I, I didn't enjoy it for a number of reasons. It wasn't because it was a bad episode or a bad short film. I mean, the whole thing of itself, let me just say this. I did not, I knew about it going in and I knew pretty much when I saw trailers as I was walking in that I was probably going to end up having to watch it. But I ended up just ignoring it completely. And I was, I spent most of my time reading your review on the shape of water. So I, I was prepared for it. But my frustration comes from the fact that it was very long. It's not your, what you typically get from a Pixar film. You don't get the five minute short that is sort of ingratiating you to the world of Pixar animation. This was a legitimate and deliberate plug for another thing altogether. 
and I don't care that it was Disney and both things are Disney. It felt different. And the fact that you go in expecting to um, experience a movie like Coco and you get sort of sideswiped with this other thing that after 10 minutes you expect to be over, but it's not, it felt a little heavy handed. It felt like more than just a plug. It felt like a, Hey, we're Disney. We can do what we want. And it felt very, I won't say offensive, but it, but it made me feel very frustrated because I didn't want that. I didn't go to the theater. You go to the theater expecting trailers. You go to the theater expecting specifically with Pixar, uh, a five minute short that shows off some of the animation prowess and creative storytelling of Pixar. And this was Pixar's time to shine. And I get that they're owned by Disney. But for me, what really set me off was at the end of the film, uh, not Coco, but but Olaf's uh, Winter uh, Frozen Adventure, there was a nice two to three minute, hey, thanks for being a part of this from the Coco creators and giving a special thanks to all the animators and everybody on it. And I think it it kind of cheapened that for me. Because by the time Olaf ended, I was ready to start the movie, and then I get two minutes of this other thing. Whereas if I hadn't seen that, I would have been like, yeah, I can absolutely appreciate the fact that you guys put in a ton of work. And after watching Coco, I was like, man, do I really appreciate that opening plug for the creative team behind Coco. And I just felt like it was cheap. And it was kind of like you get when you go to a concert and you expect your opening act to be you know, okay, that kind of sets you up for the big act. Well, I felt like the opening act here was trying to be more than what it should have been. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like that's what Disney's kind of interpreting is that it's not that people don't like Olaf. I think Josh gets really funny in this and there were some funny moments in it, but I didn't want that. I didn't go to right. see that. I went to go see trailers. I went to go see a Pixar short and I went to go see Coco. And the fact that I had to skip the trailers in order to possibly miss this whole other thing. And I ended up seeing the whole thing just kind of made my frustration increase. Yeah, I can totally see that. I think it would have significantly bothered me as well. I mean, th these days trailers are a beast and love them or hate them. You have to almost, you know, plan for an extra 20 to 30 minutes now mm -hmm. onto your movie time yeah. for trailers, uh, depending on what theater you go to. And so, when you're talking 20 minutes for trailers plus another 20 plus minutes for a short film, so you're you're talking in your seat for 45 minutes if you're there early. You're literally at the theater almost an hour before your actual movie starts. I mean, I would I would be in a bad mood, frankly. I would it would start off my experience with Coco in a negative light, and that's that's really too bad. And so I'm for one, even having not seen it and I'm talking about just the fact that it exists, not the fact of the quality. I have no idea what the quality is, but I'm glad they're going to pull it for that reason alone. And it's, and it's sad because it is, it sounds to me more like a Disney marketing ploy for themselves. My goodness, guys, you make a lot of money. You don't have to keep doing this crap. We're obviously going to see your movie. You know what I mean? Like I, it felt like, Oh, we need to, you know, this is a, a little bit out of the box Pixar film because it's about Mexican heritage and ooh, what if there are people out there that don't want to go see it because it's about a, a, a racial group that they're not comfortable with or that they don't know about? Well, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll put Olaf in front of it, and then they'll take their kids. That's what it feels like they're doing, and yeah. that bugs me. <laughs> well, I, and I don't feel like Disney did that. I don't think they were not confident in Coco. I think that 
what they here's what I anticipate is going to happen. I think Olaf's Frozen Adventure is going to end up being on Disney as an episode, uh, just a special or something like that. That Disney's going to just continue to plug with commercials here and there, and it's going to just be part of their Disney lineup uh, throughout the the holiday season. Where I think I get frustrated with is the fact that yes, it was disjointed from Coco because it's not that we're not used to short films before Pixar movies. I think the fact that Disney, who, let's face it, pretty much own half the world when it comes to film and, and whatever, have this, it almost amplifies this un, unwritten stranglehold that we, since they have, I know that there was some backlash about The Last Jedi with the critics and that the critics said, no, 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 we're not doing this. So that was kind of in my head when I was watching it. The thing is, is that Olaf's Frozen Adventure is not a bad bad short film it's it's on par so it's so i don't give any discredit to it i just think the placement of it was wrong and um you know the fact that you have four songs in 21 minutes and i don't think you get that many songs in an entire hour and a half of coco which is another thing so i was like that's a lot of stuff you're fitting into 21 yeah. minutes yeah it's it is but anywho i mean it's it is what it is, right? It's there. You were unable to avoid it, sadly. <laughs> and so. Did my best. Did my so, best. So, with that being said, let's start there then with your initial impressions. How did, you know, having set the stage, what did you think of Coco? Were you able to recover from that and enjoy the movie? Well, Jeremy, one of our, you know, who was on the, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned that it kind of, he felt like it slightly ruined it, you know, it affected his experience of Coco. It didn't for me. Coco, I got a, I think the intro with the guy, the creators of the movie really put me in a place where I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to experience this now. Uh, I was one of maybe three people in the theater, which made it a little bit better. Um, I enjoy seeing a lot of movies kind of in a, with a smaller crowd, unless it's, you have a movie that just kind of merits a lot of reaction. And um, so watching Coco, uh, I, I had, it's been, it, it honestly had been a while since I'd seen a Pixar movie. I didn't see Cars 3 this summer. Um, I can't even remember the last Pixar movie I actually saw that wasn't a sequel of one of its original properties. So for me... Did you see The Good Dinosaur? I didn't see The Good Dinosaur, at least not yet. And as much as I know it gets a lot of negative press from from different people and... You I'm know, just Gabe, saying it's the, it's the last one that's not based on a sequel. Right. And well, that's Inside one, Out. I mean, you saw Inside Out. I did. I did see Inside Out. So it's not the last one, I guess. So, okay. So the most recent one, I, it's been it's been a while since I'd seen a, a more recent original property. But all that being said, Coco was very much a refreshing story for me. And it reminded me of how good Pixar can be when given the ability to tell what I call original stories tell stories that kind of push the envelope in terms of setting, in terms of themes. Um, I think Inside Out did that to an extent. And the thing about this movie was I wasn't incredibly excited about it because it wasn't something that I was familiar with in terms of what what it was about, in terms of like the the setting for it. And it wasn't that I wasn't that I was against it or anything. I just didn't find a lot of interest in it. So I'm glad that we put it on the calendar because walking out of the theater, 
I was, I was so happy that I saw it. I was so happy that I got to experience everything that, that it brought to the table. Um, there are a lot of things that didn't feel heavy handed. It felt, the, I guess the word that I would use to describe it is sincere. Everything about the movie felt very sincere from the way the characters are set up, the way that we got backstory and the way in which it, 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 it led all the way through the different uh, plot points to the very end, how it resolved. It just felt very sincere, not heavy handed, not overly done, not perfect, but very close to it. Was it honestly sincere? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be sincere. Is anybody going to get that other than us? <laughs> if you get that listeners, let us know. Um, <laughs> Well, that's, that's awesome to hear, man. So I, I had a similar experience. Um, I did not, well, let me step, maybe step back. I did not know anything about Dia de los Muertos going into this movie. I knew that sugar schools looked cool. I have an Arkansas Razorback sugar school on my uh, entertainment center right now. You have an LSU version that I bought for us when I was on my uh, Caribbean cruise this, this summer. But thank you. You're welcome. But you know, outside of that, all I knew is, hey, there's this one time of year where Mexican heritage and, and Hispanics um, celebrate this thing they call Day of the Dead. There's lots of people dressed up like skeletons, and there's these huge parades that James Bond runs through in the opening of his movies. So I didn't have a lot of background for it. Um. I know that I've seen the movie Book of Life previously, but I didn't remember it. And I think it probably, if I if I remembered it or recalled it, it might have given me a little of this background ahead of time. But I didn't have that going into Coco. I didn't do any research. And part of that was because I wanted to know if Pixar could give it to me straight. Like, could they give me a cultural history lesson in this film? Because that's kind of what it was being billed as a little bit. And I was so pleasantly surprised by that. Um, a lot of times in press screenings, they we see the movie with an audience, right? So the public gets to come to these advanced screenings and they, they watch it with us. Well, the audience typically is built from certain demographic studies. At least that's my observation. This audience was very Hispanic heavy. And I, and I don't think that's by accident. Um, and so I'll tell you, I really liked the movie, but for me, the coolest part of my movie experience was when it was over, I had a gentleman from the row behind me tap me on the shoulder and say, hi, are you, are you, uh, are you press? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, can you, can you tell me what you thought about the film? <laughs> and obviously he had just watched it too. And so I started to talk about it and tell him what I thought. And specifically called out the fact that I felt like I had just been given this inside look at a history, a culture that I had, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with. And I thought that it was explained to me very, very sincerely, um, and in, in a way in which I could understand it and connect to it without ever experiencing it myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it, from my perspective did, did justice to their culture. And that, that was a completely presumptuous. I told them, I said, I I know this is a completely presumptuous thing to say because I have, I don't have any background for that. I don't know, you know, I'm not Hispanic. 
and he was he was smiling and nodding. He said, "Yeah." He said, "I'm glad to, I'm glad that you saw that because I did too. I w- I'm very happy with this, and I am very proud of it and what they did here." And so that experience was really cool, and I got to take that away from me and just kind of chew on it as I began to write my review and think about this movie over the next few weeks and and stuff. So everything that I love most about Coco is wrapped up in that. Uh, okay. It's in the fact that this is this is not a culture that we see given screen time uh, in much in the world at all. In fact, what do you think of first when you think of if there's a movie about Mexico? What's the first thing that's going to come to your mind? Cheech and Chong? I don't know. I mean, it's it's going to be one that for has most to... people is going to be about drugs or sure. cartels or some sort of the violence in Mexico, you know, that is, um, that gets headlines, but this is such a familial take on that. Um, and, and so, you know, we have a huge Hispanic population in the United States and I think this is cool because this is a a look into their lives. I mean, I thought about it very personally because my son is on a, on a soccer team, you know, and we, we are on a soccer team that is, uh, managed by a, a very big Hispanic population. Now, ha- over half his teammates come from a, a different culture. They grow up differently than we do, and so this movie kind of gives you a, a relatable relating point to uh, something that they experience that that maybe we don't, and right. so we can understand it. And I just I loved that about it. Um, I mean, obviously, I liked the animation. It's gorgeous, and well, it's a it's a fairly good story too. But I that's what I like the most. Well, the look in, I think, is the keyword that I, I I hone in on with what you said, because it wasn't a preachy movie. It wasn't like, we're going to tell you everything about Mexican culture. It really singled out this one event, this one holiday, and used that as the focal point to begin to tell its story. And I like movies that give me explanations without making it overly preachy. Um, well, I like stories that do that. Uh, Rick Riordan does a lot of really great stuff in his Percy Jackson series where he gets you acclimated to the world of Greek mythology in a way that's accessible to the reader. And what makes it enjoyable is that he connects mythological things to modern day ideas. And so he updates the look of Poseidon and other gods to be more hip and more pop culture-y. And I think what what Coco does is it doesn't it doesn't add to at least again I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to assume that I know more than I do about Mexican culture, but I don't sense that it adds to this Mexican culture. I think what it does is it amplifies what is celebratory about this particular event. Like it takes this event and it provides when you mentioned the the animation, it provides brilliance, brilliant amounts of color and imagination. And so many times I was thinking to myself as I was watching from the other side, you know, from the dead side of things, how much imagination went into uh, the creating this world and how much research these guys probably did in talking to Hispanic families to say, what's this like? What do you imagine the other side looks like? And to see that visualized on the big screen, to see this is what, the Mexican culture thinks of when they think of this moment and how you, what Pixar does really well is they amplify 
an idea to a place of brilliance. You know, they started that with Toy Story. They said, well, what, what would it be like if toys could actually talk and come to life? And how would you, how would we see them interact with each other? And that just kept um, moving up and up and up in their stories. And they begin, when they begin their stories with a what if premise, and what would it be like if, I think that's where their strengths lie. Coco does that for me. I, it really brings out the sense of what does the day of the dead really look like from the other side, from the dead side? Because we don't know. I mean, all we get are the celebrations of putting pictures up and remembering, which are themes that could seem kind of blase, but they then become the focal point of the, of the entire film. And to be able to do that, I think takes a lot of creativity and a lot of uh, just artistic brilliance. Yeah, I mean, I, they do. That's what I'm. That's what I was saying. Is it, it feels very authentic from that standpoint when it's what it is building around the culture, and all of that to me is fascinating. It's it's attention worthy. It's it, it grabs me and it keeps me engaged. But I want to talk about the story. So it's a movie, and it's not just a history lesson. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a story here, and we're following Miguel who's a young boy and we're just going to recap real quick that, you know, his family is, has banned music uh, over generations because, and I don't listeners give me a break here. I have no idea how many greats are in front of his grandfather that go all the way back to Coco. <laughs> Patrick's two. I think it's two. Okay. It's two. So we're going to guess and say that we think it's his great, great grandfather. That was uh, Coco's father who left the family and then, you know, to all went off to play music. And ultimately that caused the family to ban music. And so that's where, that's what Miguel's dealing with. And of course we get to experience this theme, therefore of a family that is, is being controlling. And I think that that's an interesting thing for us to see because it's something we could all relate to, you know, or, Many of us can relate to at least, uh, within our own families, whether it's, you know, being controlling about a career choice or a hobby or, or something on a much simpler level. Essentially what's being here, what's done here is Coco's not, not Coco. Miguel is not being allowed to have his own life, his own, make his own choices and his passions and his desires that are part of who he is are fighting against that because he wants to play music. Um, and so that's kind of that underlying theme going through. He goes to the land of the dead and he meets Hector, who is an amazing, awesome character. Um, he's the one thing that I remembered coming out of this movie and for a movie that hit me on the head over and over and over with remembering things. Um, it was the, he was the one character that I felt like was Pixar worthy you know, and when I think of Pixar movies, I think of Woody and Buzz and Wally and Sully and Mike. And there, there's all of these very, very memorable characters. For me, I didn't get that out of, out of Coco nearly as much as other Pixar films. And I'm not sure what the reason for that is. Um, Hector would be the closest thing to it, but even him, I don't feel compelled to be like, oh, hey, I want to go get a Hector pop figure uh, because Hector was so cool. Uh, and so, you know, that's where the story starts to 
not be as impactful to me or not not grab me as much. It's my feelings on this movie are very odd and hard to put into words. So I'm trying to talk through this. I I don't dislike Coco at all. I enjoyed my experience watching the film. My thing about Coco is that I feel like when I left the theater the next day, it was out of my mind and it was on to the next thing. And I didn't really have any reason to go back and revisit it. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you, I feel like you might've had a different experience and I'm wondering what that reason might be for your and I's different take on it. Well, I want to address a couple of things you said. You mentioned that the, that the character of Hector was probably the most Pixar-esque character. Is that maybe? Essentially, as far as like being a memorable character, yeah. And I would say that your reasoning behind that, my theory, my, my fan fiction theory, is the fact that he is inanimate. I mean, you mentioned these other characters, Woody, Buzz, um, Sully, Mike. These are all inanimate characters. These are all per- personified characters of things that we are familiar with. And Hector kind of is the embodiment of a dead, not a dead person. Yeah, we're familiar with that. But you know what I'm saying? They're not human beings. Right. And, no, I and gotcha. So, and so Miguel, in a lot of ways, doesn't really come across as, he comes across as a Disney character. I mean, I can definitely agree with that. I walked out of the theater feeling the same way you did in terms of not wanting to revisit it immediately, but I had the sense of satisfaction leaving the theater and feeling like I got a complete story. Like I got something that wasn't overly done. That's something that wasn't underwhelming by any means. Like I didn't feel like I needed more. I felt like I got all I wanted out of it and didn't, and didn't feel dissatisfied. I did. I didn't expect to be wowed by it. Um, there's a there's a scene near the very beginning where Miguel is um he's running through the village and he's I guess he's going down to do some shoe shines in the I guess the musicians area of the village and for some reason I was taken back to the one of the early scenes in Kubo where Kubo goes down to the village and pres- does his performance you know with all the paper and for some reason that that scene stuck out to me um, because it resonated, because that was a scene from Kubo that I really uh, connected with. I don't know if it was my connecting point, but remembering that and then feeling like when I was watching the story of Miguel play out, I think I got connected with it a bit more than I expected. Uh, from from that moment, it became more enjoyable. But I didn't I didn't walk away feeling like I. I didn't walk away feeling like I needed to see it again, but I did walk away feeling like I want to visit it again when it comes out on DVD. So, so it's, I wonder, I wonder if some of that has to do with the fact that you're a musician. And, and so this is a movie about a musician, about a person that is passionate and has a great love of playing music, specifically guitar. In fact, mm-hmm. and you play the guitar and you have that same passion. Sure. So do you think that that might have some, some play into your relatability versus mine? I would not doubt it. And it's different than my connection with something like Sing Street in that that's also a movie about musicianship. It's also coming of age. There are other factors that play into why that movie is so high up on my list. But I I would not disagree that Coco is a movie that centers around music. Uh, One thing that I gravitated towards soon before seeing it was the little 
featurette that was before some of the trailers that talked about the fact that the the creators used GoPro cameras and put them on the headstocks of guitars to get the details of how the uh, the musicians actually uh, hammered the strings with their fingers and how they plucked the the or or strummed the guitar. So that was something I was going to look for. But my love for music and the way in which he got excited, it's really more about the creative process. I mean, to think about how Kubo, uh, just how he grips the guitar. There are certain things about the movie where I see him just sort of hold the guitar in his hand when when he's shining the guy's shoes and the guy's like, here, show me what you got. And he's like, oh, like that would be me. I'd be like, oh, yes, I would love to show you, but I'm really scared because I'm not supposed to be here. So, yes, I, I, I completely... Uh, would agree that that had something to do with it. So then sticking to the music, um, for a movie that is about music at its heart uh, within the story, this to me did not feel like a musical. I don't think you mentioned earlier that we got as many songs essentially in um, Coco as we did in the Olaf short Mm -hmm. and that there were four in that. And I, you know, I didn't feel like we got a lot of songs um, for me, the music, what I enjoyed them, I thought it was very authentic and I really enjoyed the sound of the music. Uh, I think that the choice of having the language be in both English and Spanish during some of the mm-hmm. songs was a wise one. I, I, I thought that was just fascinating. Um, both because, you know, it's so fluidly shifted between the, the different languages, but because I didn't really care. I didn't need to, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything lyrically. Um, the, the, the way that the scene was being done and the lyrics that I could understand seemed to tell me enough of the story to fill those holes for the words that I didn't understand. And I thought it was great. They didn't throw subtitles up on the screen for, for those portions. So I really liked that about it. What I didn't like, um, was that the only thing I remember at all, coming out of this movie from any of the music is remember me. Right. And, and, and it, and of course it's like slamming me with those words and that's part of it. But like, that's the only thing that is still in my head. I have no idea what those other songs sounded like. Mm-hmm. They're gone completely. And I, I just felt like that was a miss. I felt like I should, I should, I should be more into the music. Like the song should, have some sort of lasting staying power with me if they're really that good. And I didn't feel like they did. What about you? I felt completely the opposite, but from the same conclusion, remember me is the only one that I clearly remember. And Hector's right. It's very much overly played. You know, it's one that everybody knows. And I don't know that the purpose of these songs was to be memorable because it was not about the songs. I mean, I don't think we ever get this thing. Like we never get the idea that it's about the songs. It's about singing. When we hear it's about the music, it's about the performance. It's about the act of letting yourself go. There's particularly a a scene where Hector is in a just hilarious way, trying to, uh, trying to psych Miguel up and going, you know, getting his own little, I don't even know what that's called, so I'm not going to even try to give it a name. (laughs) But it's about the performance. And I don't remember many of the songs. 
What I do like is the fact that they didn't feel like tropes. They didn't feel stereotypical. What I, what I do also remember is the sound of that classical guitar, the way in which it's and you know, all these, just this really fantastic, uh, finger picking and string work that goes into playing that as someone who enjoys that style of music to an extent, it was very refreshing to hear that, but not necessarily to feel like I needed to remember the songs or remember what those things sounded like. Because for me, it was the experience. Again, if I go back to Sing Street, it was more about the songs and about the fact that the characters were growing and their songs were changing as a result of their growth. So, which culminated to a drive, drive it like you stole it. Movies like this, I don't think the creators had in mind, we need to make sure that this becomes something where the soundtrack is memorable. Um, maybe that, and maybe they did, and it, it was just a miss. But for me, I don't feel like it was a detriment because this was never a movie about songs. I was glad that it wasn't filled with a ton of, of songs because then it would have felt like a Disney movie. And I say that very right. unforced, unforced or forced, like unnecessary right. songs right. where they just, oh, we're going to break into song because we're skipping down the bridge. Exactly. Yeah, there's every, none of that. And I right. agree. That's amazing. Every song was a performance and it was purposeful. Yes. Every song felt like it had a reason to be sung as opposed to, you know, you have a an Olaf who is going around saying, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, so I'm just going to start singing and I'm going to have this chorus behind me and now it's going to be a big giant, you know, snowball fest. So I think for for Coco, it it added to that sincerity and to that authenticity of this is probably what happens in events like this. This is probably you know when people are excited about playing music and they're just out there doing their thing as musicians and singers. Like I loved, I absolutely loved the 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 troop of of um, trumpet trumpet players and those guys that actually won the competition uh, because you could see in their faces and in their performance, they were just having a blast. And I just, I thought that that music added to the movie, but only so much as to support the overall narrative. So it didn't surprise me that I didn't remember a ton of the songs because that wasn't really what the movie was about. Right. Well, what did you think? Uh, so the, the film deals with spirituality as well. And this, very specific way. Um, you know, I equated the idea of the land of the dead to um, a Catholic version of purgatory in some ways, this belief that this is where people go when they die and, you know, you can pray for them. Um, they, they need to be remembered in order to survive there. Uh, and I, so I wonder, like for me, I really enjoyed exploring that idea and mm-hmm. thinking on it. Um, I thought it was, I had a really interesting duality to it where the living needed to remember the dead because they felt that it kept them connected to their past and the dead needed the living to remember them uh, because it was how they could go on without fading away or uh, being forgotten. And that would be the end of their, I guess, other life. Some of these words get confusing, but, um, but both, both sides needed to remember the other for a different reason. Um, and so I really enjoyed that, that thought. And, you know, it made me, 
it made me think a little bit about, you know, my own faith, because obviously this is not something that uh, is part of Protestant Christianity, uh, where we have this kind of holding place as we know it. But, you know, I've lost my mom and I think about my mom often. Um, And I wondered, you know, what it would be like if I was to actually believe that, you know, my mom needed me to remember her in order to continue, you know, living and, and coming, coming over to, to visit every, every year. (laughs) And while I don't really think that this is a, a literal belief that, that people have, um, it's, I think it's something that warms your heart and gives you comfort to think about your loved ones still coming to visit you or still being able to be a part of your life, see what you're doing. Um, it's something that we all say all the time, you know, your mom's looking down on you, Patrick. Uh, and I think that that's where this kind of stems from. But how did the spirituality of this one resonate with you? Well, I really, I looked at it with a lot of sincerity in terms of how does this connect to my faith? And I imagine if the the boys over at Popcorn Theology do this episode, it'll be worth tuning in for because I'd be interested to hear what they think. But for me, I looked at this and and I thought that there was some real innocence with this and this idea that the the importance of remembering the value of remembering from someone who is living i see that played out in the lives of uh family and in some friends and it's interesting because i've seen two different approaches from from two individuals in my life and one has lost their their dad and speaks of him often uh, they go to they go to his grave and talk to him. We see that played out a lot in in movies and television. And there's something very honest and very uh, sincere about that. And then there is another friend of mine who has lost their mom. And I've even said, "Have you been to see? Uh, have you been to your uh, to your mom's grave?" And they say, "No, why? I mean, she's not there." <laughs> So it's really interesting to get those two perspectives because I don't think either one of them are negative or mm, wrong, I guess would be the word. I think they're both ways in which people see and connect with their past and particularly the people of their past. I don't think for one person, it means that they're more connected to their relative than this other person. I think that their faith and the way in which they approach their faith informs that because I, for one, my faith tells me that your death is just that when you're dead, you're dead. And then based on your, your faith determines kind of what happens afterwards. So from a faith-based perspective, I don't connect with the actual uh, world of, of Coco, but what I do connect with is the value of remembering the value of being able to, essentially not forget. And what's ironic is that you have Coco who you mentioned, or not Coco, but you had Miguel who you mentioned earlier is sort of being oppressed. His musicianship is being oppressed because from the very beginning, there was this, there was this traumatic moment where his great, great grandfather leaves to go be a musician. 
And so from there on out, they're trying to forget. <laughs> they're trying to forget this incident, uh, which is, you know, which is ironic. And while simultaneously remembering everyone yes. else and putting great value in that, by the way, exactly. huge value. Like it's a big deal if you mess up the ofrenda. Yes, absolutely. And so when we get into the these themes of remembering, what I gravitated towards was that the the creators here didn't stop it. Hey, you have to remember when we get to the major, like third act, it's really more about how you're remembered. And we see that in this contrast of Hector versus Dela Cruz, two individuals who both want to be remembered and who are both on the cusp of being remembered or not being remembered. Uh, there was a, <laughs> it reminded me a lot. I've watched a recent documentary on. Uh, Batman and Bill about Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman, who um, for the longest time was not credited on the Batman comics. Bob Kane was. And the way in which these guys were, quote, remembered for the longest time was almost a direct parallel with the way that Hector and Dela Cruz were. Hector being Finger and Dela Cruz being uh, Bob Kane. So Dela Cruz gets all this fame and he's remembered by all these people for stuff that he didn't necessarily do, at least not on his own. And Hector here is on the verge of dying the ultimate death because he's being forgotten. And he had equally as much, if not more, to do with the success of these songs and the fame of Dela Cruz than Dela Cruz did. So I think that the, the movie does a really great job of emphasizing how we are remembered even more so than just that we are remembered. Because being remembered, it can't be the, it can't be a, that's not enough. It's important right. that we do have. So you mentioned there about the, the twist, <laughs> um, in that, you know, we get into the, so we get three quarters or two thirds of the way through this movie and we've been under the impression through Miguel's perspective this whole time that Ernesto de la Cruz is his grandfather. He has the guitar, he sings the songs that are like remember, like all of it, all of it lines up to be that Ernesto de Cruz is his grandfather and that that's the adventure is the important part is for him to get there and connect with him so that he can get back. Well, I guess just real briefly, did you see it coming? Nope. Okay. And And I was glad I did. Okay. Me either. I was hit with like a ton of bricks. When I finally realized that it was Hector and it was very emotionally moving for me uh, because of what we've seen Miguel and Hector go through and the relationship they've had, um, they, they have a great, great connection and great chemistry, the way that they've bonded. Uh, I really like that scene. It's in all the trailers too, where um, Miguel is making fun of the way Hector is walking. <laughs> But like, that's the kind of moment that I feel like is so genuine, uh, of a, of a moment between family members or friends. And so when we finally learn that it's Hector and that all this time, his grandfather has been right there in front of him. There's just, there's so much that it's so heavy that it, when mm-hmm. it, when it hits, like, hits you and you realize all the implications of it Yeah, that I enjoyed the heck out of that. Um, now I, I didn't love as much the, the next, the end of the movie uh, up. So there's this section that I, I didn't really 
care that much for. And it's, it's between finding out that Hector is really his grandfather and then ultimately the very, very ending of the film when they're back in the land of the living and in the family house. Those two portions I really enjoy. The little bit of, of adventurism and, you know, going on the stage and trying to avoid Ernesto de la Cruz who's going after him. Yeah, it was kind of like, ah, eh, this is just general, you know, movie fare for me. But the idea of, you know, this, this guy who had stolen his friends, you know, songs and his guitar and essentially his identity and taken all of his creative material. He had, you know, utilized this scene from a movie in order to get rid of him. All of that is so creative and such interesting storytelling. And I, I did, I was moved. I, I cried. Um, when I found out who Hector was, uh, it was one of the two times I actually got teary in this movie. And so I really liked that as well. So I'm glad to hear that you did. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice reveal more so. And I, I would agree the, the adventure to basically kind of get rid of Dela Cruz was par for the course. It was similar to what I'd seen in like the Lion King. You know, you have the crowd turning on the bad guy and then you eventually get this comeuppance by, you know, getting, bonged with a you know with the with the bell like he did in real life so it was fine it wasn't like <gasps> but i agree the scene before that and then the follow-up scene a year later was really really great in particular when we see the fact that mama coco was added to the pictures and the way what that that kind of played itself out the way in which miguel was telling his i guess his little sister uh, the story of all of these people. And it, it again, I just, I, I love using the word sincere because I felt like that's what it was. One thing I didn't pick up on, uh, I had to read about was hints that Hector was the one and it's the guitar. If you look closely at the headstock, you can see that there's a single gold tooth embedded in the headstock of the guitar that, you know, that Miguel tries to steal from Dela Cruz's grave you see that same one in the picture, which, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, but then you see Hector when he smiles and in his picture, and he's got that same singular gold tooth in his mouth. And so you kind of make that connection like, Oh, okay. And it was very, again, I didn't pick up on it and glad I didn't, but it was a nice little nod to say, Hey, we're just going to run this little thread of letting you know, there's a connection here. And this is what would probably make me want to watch it a second time was to see how, if, if the, if the animators with the, in addition to that one scene where Miguel is quote, walking like a dead person uh, and walking like Hector, if there are other things that Miguel does mannerism wise that Hector does or vice versa to see if maybe they throw that in there because Pixar is known for its subtlety. And I don't think that Coco is without some of those. I just didn't pick up on them this time around. But the twist or the reveal was probably one of the more uh, satisfying parts of the movie for me. Me as well. I definitely enjoyed that probably the most. Um, I really like the ending as well, as I mentioned. And you know, part of that is because for the longest time, I so going into this film, the other twist, and it's not really a twist, but it's a surprise to me. I always wondered why this movie was called Coco. Like, what is the reason for this film having this title? Because this boy's name is Miguel. Hector's name is Hector. You know, like, there is no, what is this Coco? You know, what is this all about? 
And when we learn, you know, that it's Mama Coco, who is the the daughter of Hector, ultimately. And so it's it's in the under it's in that last moment where Miguel is talking to her and she kind of comes alive briefly that you really understand what this why this film is about her even though it doesn't follow her at all you know it's it's all about Miguel's adventure but she's the one who has been living with this this idea that her dad you know abandoned her and she actually has never given up hope and believed that he he didn't um you know she she's very honest about that and yet the rest of the family just tells her, no, no, he did. He left you. You know, he's, he, he's awful, but you can tell that, you know, she still, she still saw him even 90 years later as her dad, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it kind of gives you that feeling of no matter what happens between family members, your dad is your dad and your mom is your mom. And so that was really touching to me. And I thought it was a neat thing to have her name be the title because of the importance of this story to her that we don't even find, don't even realize until they're at the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. That was a surprise to me too, because I didn't pick up on until probably the, maybe the, the middle part of the film that Coco was even mentioned. I didn't even, I, I don't know if in the opening narration, if there was any mention of Coco being the daughter. So it didn't, I don't it, think so. It wasn't it wasn't very heavy handed at all. So to get that reveal near the end was refreshing and it helped me it was kinda like putting a puzzle together and kind of getting those last pieces in place. And I liked that. I liked seeing that this this movie's story was driven by Miguel's adventure, but it it really reinforced the themes of remembering because the only reason that Hector exists is because Coco remembers him. I mean, this whole time she's the only one from what I can tell, if everybody else has been shutting him down, then she must be the only one that is still remembering him. So I, I thought that was a fantastic way to reinforce that theme. Made me feel like they knew that this was an important part of the movie. So let's reinforce it by calling this Coco because that's who remembers him. It also sounds a lot cooler than Miguel by Pixar. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Patrick, I don't have uh, much else. Do you have anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to discuss? No, I, I think we pretty much hit everything. Great. Well, like a good guitarist, then we hit all of our notes. Okay, that was that was bad. I guess See, that's good. That's good. That's B plus. No, I don't. Okay, well, I'll take it. So <laughs> we resolve well, our chords. Oh wow! See, I yes. didn't even know that was a thing. Okay. <laughs> well, with that being said, why don't we move into our connecting points then, and we will go over what moved us the most. And I'll start. I mentioned this there here recently, and it, it really is just kind of a an expansion of that. The singing of "Remember Me" on both occasions that this happens is what I remember most about this movie. And when I was emotionally connected to it uh, is when I got teary. It's when I felt for the characters. The first time with Hector and Miguel, um, when he's realizing 
who Hector is. And Hector is, is just calling out to be, to be remembered and known. And you realize like the pain that comes from what is, what occurred, what happened to him having been murdered and just completely lost everything. And, and no one knows the truth. There was an innocence and just an honesty in the way that Miguel was feeling all of these emotions. And I thought that that came out great, both in the animation, in the uh, music for the storytelling, everything that was going on there. It was very impactful for me. And then when that same song is tied in at the end and Miguel plays it for Mama Coco and we know Mama Coco at this point to be almost just uh, unable to move, unable to open her eyes, unable to talk. She doesn't, doesn't do much at all for her to come alive, to remember that song and to remember her father. Uh, through the playing of that song for that to bring him back or, or help solidify him in some way in her memory. It was so, 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 so touching. And I don't know, you know, part of that may be because I've lost my mom. Uh, and so I immediately went to that place where that's what I was thinking about was what are those songs and what are those memories that I have that most bring her back in? Uh, to my mind. And I just thought it was a wonderful, touching way to connect the two. Um, and I felt so, I don't know. I just felt so strongly, you know, I wanted, I wanted them to have that reunion, Hector and Coco and knowing that they couldn't Miguel being that bridge that could, could pull them together in some way and serve as that, that connecting character that gave Mama Coco, um, you know, the feeling of, of peace and comfort about her father. I just, I I thought it was amazing. And it was despite my overall, not thinking that not walking out of this film, um, head over heels about it, as far as it being the best Pixar film I've ever seen, because I really do enjoy it. Like that relationship and the way that it is handled in this movie is one of my favorite things in a Pixar movie in many, many years. I really enjoyed it. I I enjoyed that, that scene as well. There's a documentary that I'd recommend. I think it's still on Netflix, but I don't remember. It's called alive inside. And it explores the idea of how music works in conjunction with, um, with uh, folks with dementia like older folks and how it allows them to it when, when they listen to certain songs, it forces them and brings them out to a place where they just, I don't know. It changes their behavior. It changes their, the way in which they are. I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it changes them in the moments that they're listening to it. And this reminded me of that. Coco is reminded through this song, not only of the, of the memories, but you see her come alive you see her eyes open, you see her mouth crack a smile. And then she starts talking about, I remember that song. And then she reaches over and grabs the letters and it's just so cool, man. It's so cool. And you see the rest of the family sitting there, not scolding Miguel, but just saying, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this because I think for so long she's been disconnected from the rest of the family. And, and what an amazing thing, right? 
Yeah, no, to bring it back and ultimately eventually to bring this action and this, this whole ending of the movie, you know, as part of that because it, the family goes from having abandoned, uh, music and they go to, they learn this, they learn forgiveness. Um, mm-hmm. and they, they come together as a family and instead of controlling what Miguel is doing, they embrace it. And I just, I love the transition there of the growth of a family and the cycle of a family and how true that's true to life, how families act and how families deal with problems and they go through these things. And I thought it was a, a great, um, great way to capture that in an animated way. Yeah. There's a lot of forgiveness in that scene as well from everybody. Well, I like yours. Well, it, it definitely centered around music. Like I think several of these scenes did, and in a lot of ways, it did what your scene did. Is it is it resonated viscerally with me in terms of the power of music and what it did? And it it was the scene where Hector gets the guitar from Miguel in order to play at the talent competition. Uh, Hector brings Miguel to meet. Uh, I think its name is Chikaron. I want to if I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize. But Admiral not, Dama is all I know. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, it, I'm not going to pronounce the guy, mispronounce the guy's name who played him, Edward James Almost, which I think is fantastic. So he's a friend of Hector's who was uh, once a musician as well. And so he's fading away. And this is the first time we get this this introduction into like this final death. So we see him start flickering. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? He's having a seizure or something. And this is really weird. And he can't move from his hammock. So he, uh, Hector asked for the guitar, but only after he plays him one of his favorite songs. And again, I don't remember the song. It was not very memorable, but the act of playing it was. And, and then this is where we get the explanation of what that final death is, how this person is now not being remembered by anybody. And so he actually dies and he is no longer living in the minds or hearts or anything of anybody in the living world. And it was really sad, but at the same time, it was very connecting because it reminded me of the importance of what it means to be remembered. And then later on how that gets reinforced with how we are remembered. And if I, if I tie this back to my own life or the lives of people that I'm connected with, I ask myself, how am I being remembered with the people that I'm connected with? How am I being remembered to my son? Am I being remembered as a overbearing dad or as a pal or as someone who is a strong leader, someone he can trust? Am I to my wife? Am I being remembered with my relationship with her as someone who is consistent or someone who is passive aggressive? What kind of legacy uh, mentally am I leaving for the people in my life? And I think that this movie in this scene really begins to introduce us to what that means and what it means to really lose something when you don't remember what, you know, that, that thing anymore. And I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, but I know that I've had conversations about the reality of did something exist if you don't remember it anymore? (laughs) You know, if it's forgotten, does that mean it doesn't exist anymore? And Coco, on at least a, a lighter level, asks that question. And I think in some ways tries to answer it. Uh, and whether or not I agree with that answer, I think the value of being able to at least explore that question and understand the 
the importance of being remembered and how I, uh, a person's remembered. Uh, it stayed with me. And it was probably the biggest thing that, that I took away from this movie. Well, that's good, man. Yeah. I, I love that scene as well. And, uh, I got a little bit teary during it too. Just, you know, the, the visualization, especially of, of him disappearing is so, gosh, I mean, <laughs> it, it's so final, right? Yeah. Like with him going and fading off of the screen in that, that way it's, it's showing you death. Um, it's different than seeing, you know, a human die in a movie where mm-hmm. their body is still there and they're just not moving. Their eyes are closed. It's, it's like a, you still have to imagine that their soul is gone, yeah. but in this you're you're actually seeing it disappear and it's just, I don't know. It was, it was really powerful, but mm-hmm. yeah, good stuff, man. Well, uh, all right. So Coco, we both enjoy Keddy. We highly recommend as Two well. Two four letter films. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Yeah. Well, what are also sort of four letter films are coming up next? Okay. Star, that is Star, Star and Wars. And Wars right? <laughs> so, listeners, Jedi, yeah. <laughs> Four Orsawak. Um no. okay. So anyway, listeners, what we're going to be doing the next 2 weeks is we are going to be jumping into Star Wars hard and heavy. We started our podcast about three, four months after The Force Awakens, and so we didn't get to cover that when it first released in theaters. We're going to rectify that. So next week, we're going to bring you uh, some conversation on The Force Awakens, leading into the following week, when, of course, we're going to talk about The Last Jedi. I'm pretty excited about this, Patrick. Uh, having recently reinvigorated my enjoyment and excitement for this franchise, um, I was on a little bit of a, of a low after Rogue One, but I've been able to set that aside and realize that, you know, outside of that, I've really enjoyed all of the films. And I, I rewatched, uh, The Force Awakens a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, and I liked it a lot. And so I'm excited to watch it again with my kids as we prep for The Last Jedi, because I want to get it back fresh in their minds and then, uh, get to have a conversation with you about it. So, mm-hmm, yeah. I have not seen it exciting. since. Yeah, I haven't seen it since I went to the theater. So it's been over a year. Oh wow, good. So we'll get to know how it's changed and evolved for you since then, specifically. Absolutely. As well, so that'll be fun. Um, also, listeners, voting is currently open uh, as of this recording. I think what is today, December third? Yeah. So third slash fourth. <laughs> open until December tenth, two thousand seventeen, is our voting for our December uh, patron pick. That's where our uh, Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash film for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, you can become a supporter and you gain votes. And we have an episode every month that we let you vote on. This month we are doing non-traditional Christmas movies. So that's going to be Batman Returns, Lethal Weapon, Edward Scissorhands, Die Hard, and Gremlins. So exciting group of movies. I will be pleased to talk about any of them. <laughs> I can't wait to see how this shakes out. It, I, it's already not going the way I thought it would. <laughs> I'll tell you well, that. Well, all five movies have votes. That's the only thing I know. I know, right. All five movies have So, yeah. So, listeners, if you're interested 
you know, less than a cup of coffee. It helps us keep the podcast going. It helps us expand. Um, we are going to be doing some technical improvements here at the end of the year to coincide with uh, 2018 starting up. We're going to have a new website experience that we hope is a little bit more friendly and uh, directs you easier to both our audio content and our written reviews and written content that's, that's becoming more pro- pro- prevalent. Gosh, I don't know why I couldn't say that word. Uh, and then we're also going to be just kind of just giving us ourselves a touch up and we, we can only do that because of your amazing generosity. So if you are so inclined and you have a few extra bucks and you want to do that, feel free to pop over to patreon.com slash feeling film and, uh, get some votes and pick your favorite non-traditional Christmas movie for us to cover at the end of the month. If you would like to continue the conversation with me on social media, you can do that at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter and Facebook. And you can find me very active in our amazing Facebook group that is on Facebook. <laughs> well, I would hope it is. <laughs> our Facebook group that's on uh, MySpace. It's on MySpace, yes. <laughs> so that's that's me, Patrick. What about you? Where can people find you? Uh, you can check me out on the big three. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S. On Facebook, Twitter, and the gram. I haven't said that in a while, so I'm going to go ahead and say that. And if you get a chance or want to join the conversation about any of the things that we've been talking about or television, anything just kind of film related on the big screen or small screen, as you mentioned, Aaron, we do have a Facebook group that is growing every day and there's a lot of great conversation happening. I'm, I'm overly impressed with just the amount of conversation and the diversity of conversation that's happening. We have several people that uh, contribute to the show and they have their own stuff that they bring to the table. Uh, guys like Don, who has, uh, who brings our every move, who brings our, what we've been up to, or not what we've been up to, but the, uh, what we learned this week, he has his own column. Every movie has a lesson. Uh, it's worth checking out. But uh, if you, if you like anything about the show, please uh, throw a like, uh, on our Facebook page or give us a review on iTunes, just any way to allow other people to let us know how, how great we are. If you think we're great. And if you don't think we're great, then well, we'll try to be great. So in the meantime, put a review up there and, and keep us, uh, keep us uh, growing as you do by joining the Facebook group and all that other stuff. Sounds good, man. Well, until next week, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope you'll be back for the star Wars awesomeness that is to come and stay positive and keep feeling film.